I hate going so deep, so early, so quickly on a on an early morning like this. It's foggy. It's been rainy. I mean, I guess I, this is what it feels like in Seattle if you live in Seattle. Uh, no offenders if anybody's listened by podcast. Um, but uh, the the whole idea of rain, rain all week, and foggy this morning. This is one of those days that it's easy to sleep in and to just kind of mark this day off as something else. But to go deep with us for just a moment, I want to ask you the question, what are you more of? Are you greater? Am I greater? Are we greater? Are we is the greatest element in the essence of our life? Is it the physical world in which we live? Or is it the spiritual in which is inanimate? in which we cannot see, we cannot touch, sometimes we cannot even grasp or put our arms around, which is greater, the physical world or the spiritual world? I want to propose to you the idea idea today that we are not human beings with a spiritual existence. That here is the primary, the the, the physical and, and somehow appendage to us like an appendix, is the spiritual world that maybe you tap into it, maybe you don't, but it's just kind of added on somewhere in there. That that is not the truth, the reality in which we exist, that in actuality, that the reality in which we live in is that we are spiritual with an add-on that we live in a physical world. That this physical world is passing away even as we every morning get out of bed and look in the mirror. Maybe not every day you're fading that quickly in all of your glory. Uh, But there is an element of us that is passing away moment by moment every day that we live. And that the physical world will one day come to an end. But the spiritual, that inanimate, that that unknowable sometimes, that mysterious mysterious element of, of life is actually something that will live on and on and on and has existed long before we ever got on this big blue marble. But that actually the spiritual reigns preeminent over the physical. I don't believe everything. I would not agree with everything that Winston Churchill said, prime minister, commander, leader of the British during the time of World War II. But I would I have to agree with him at least on his assessment of this very topic in dealing with the spiritual or the animalistic instincts that is within us, he said this. He said, the destiny of man is not measured by, by material computation. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we are spirits and not animals. Now, I have seen people who act like animals, and they take on a greater distinguishing element of an animalistic approach than than, than a spiritual approach, but I think you can look at it through commanders and leaders and, 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 and psychologists and philosophies and theologians, and just, I think, your own personal life experience is that there is truly a spiritual world out there that I'm afraid some of us wake up to just occasionally. But every day we wake up in the physical. But occasionally, maybe once a week on a Sunday morning, maybe once in a season in our life or something like that, we might really wake up to the spiritual. But as a daily consciousness, as a 24-7 awareness, I'm afraid some of us live in the fog that is out there physically for us today. And then I propose to you today that the physical is only a shell for the spiritual. And that we need to understand a different side of us 
One of my favorite quotes of all times is by the great Baptist pastor, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, R.G. Lee, when he makes this statement. He says, if you wake up in the morning and you don't meet the devil face to face, it just means you're walking in the same direction. The reality is, is that I think that if we were to be far more cognizant of, of what is going on spiritually in this world and the, the, the tension of this world, that really if we don't wake up every day with the real, reality that there is a cosmic battle for my loyalty, a cosmic battle for my integrity, a cosmic battle for my attitudes, a cosmic battle for me, then we are literally walking asleep. Sleepwalking. And the battle is raging, and sometimes I wonder if we're just asleep in the midst of it all. A great Puritan, Thomas Brooke, talks about the spiritual world and brings us to light as the adversary plays his part in our life. And he brings out that there are three primary, and this dates back actually to the Reformation, but there are three primary ways that Calvin, Luther, and many others since then have pointed out that Satan primarily works in our life. It is in the flesh, it is in the world, and it is the devil himself. There are three primary ways, and it was Brooke who brings it out, and he says that Satan is like the fisherman in the world. He is out to catch us. He is out to hook us. We even used the analogy last week as Peter used, that he is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So he is out for our hide, our loyalty, our integrity, who we are. Then there is the flesh, our flesh that is we live in, we deal with. It is like the hook. Satan uses, the fisherman uses a hook. He uses our flesh, our proclivities, if you will. He uses a nature that is within us that we must, again, be aware of or we will be, become bait or chum for the demons and the darkness. The world, however, represents the bait. The bait. Satan is the fisherman. Our flesh is the hook. But he baits us with the world. He baits us with different things. If, if our hook is attitude, let's say anger, we can't seem to get a grasp on our anger. What will Satan do? He will bait our hook with many opportunities to be angry. He will put us in opportunities. He will allow us. He'll have people cross our paths to where he will constantly be baiting our hook with the very proclivity that we have. But also, if you take a person who struggles in the thought life, maybe they are very astute mentally and very astute spiritually. They have all kinds of knowledge behind them, but they can't seem to control the lust of their eyes, the the longings of their heart, the desire for somebody else physically. What will he do? He will obviously put in front of our paths, constantly baiting our hook with the desire for another person. And if we cannot identify this bait, we are in trouble. If we don't see the hook of our own flesh, we are in trouble. If we cannot see Satan is out to devour us, we are asleep at the will and we're in trouble. Take your Bibles. We find the book of 2 Corinthians. Because we need to learn to identify the bait, break the hook, and kick the devil out of the boat in our life. 
if we're going to have victory in our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is just one of many passages. I could not, cannot, and if we studied for six months, probably do a true study of every passage that deals with spiritual warfare. Because you would have to go back to Adam and Eve. You'd have to go all the way to Revelation 21. And you would see Satan in the narrative of Scripture from the beginning to the end. And he is always in the story of people's lives. So he's even at work in our story. And so here we come to just, again, not a random passage, but certainly a passage where, where Paul is helping a church, the church of Corinth. And I have said so many times, you should be hearing it in your sleep, that when I come to the church of Corinth and we talk about the church of Corinth, we are talking about 21st century America. We're talking about a, a, a community. We're talking about a worldview that's going on in this time and age in the first century that looks so much like America in the 21st century. I mean, they, they own it all. They were very wealthy. They know it all. They were very educated. And they like to make God in their own image. If they don't like the God of that church, they'll go to another church. If they don't like the God that's represented here, they'll, or they'll just create their own God. They truly were 21st century people like us. And so when we come to this passage, it is, it is so very, very personal, I think, as I think about it. But Paul is here and kind of going into a totally different section if you were to look at 2 Corinthians as a whole. When, he, when you start in chapter 10, it's almost as if it's a separate section, almost a sec, separate uh, section of the, uh, of the entire book. And so in verse 1, he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So you see the attitude in which Paul's coming to the table. I'm coming, I'm begging, I'm entreating with gentleness and meekness. I who am humble when face to face, but bold towards you when I am away. I think you learn a little bit about the personality of Paul just in that one statement. Paul does not live for confrontation. Now, Paul is a person that's not afraid of confrontation. I think you can see that throughout Scripture as well. He's not one who looks for it. He's not one who backs away from it if he needs to. But he comes in a posture, in a humility, that whenever he's with you, he wants to be a servant to you. And you can see that again throughout his ministry. But if he needs to, he'll take his pen and ink, and he'll begin to tell us what it is that we need to fix in our life. In verse 2, he says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you, uh, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Evidently, there was a rumor going around through Corinth that Paul wasn't everything he was cracked up to be, that he looked as if he was. There was a little bit of uh, doubting of his character. Now, Paul was ready to confront those. He says, I hope I don't have to confront you all. I hope we don't have to deal with this. So what he does is he begins to break down what the flesh is. And us today, again, living in this flesh, physical, animate world, we kind of have a hard time understanding that it is truly a spiritual, inanimate world that we truly are living in and being able to put our arms around that. But Paul's wanting to come and help them to get things straight before he gets there. So he comes to verse 3 and he says this, For though I walk, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
It's almost kind of like a play on words. Yes, I'm in the flesh. Yes, I'm living in the flesh. But but, 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 it's not all about the flesh. There is something out there that is beyond the flesh. We are not, we, I may be in the flesh, you may be in the flesh, I, we're all in the flesh, flesh and blood he's talking about here, but it doesn't mean that we're going to operate according to that. It doesn't mean that we're living according to that. It doesn't mean that that's everything. There is something beyond this that we need to be highly aware of. And it's in that waking up alarm clock of our life today that I hope that this series does for us is it wakes us up to a new reality. It wakes us up to the blinders that have maybe been in our life that have kind of covered us over the, that we aren't seeing everything. And it, I just say what Paul says. Listen, yes, we may be living in the flesh in northwest Arkansas today in 2009, but that's not everything. There's a whole other world out there that we need to be made aware of. And we're not going to live according to this world. We need to be very aware of it. So today, I, my question for us is how do we wake up in the morning and not walk in the same direction as the devil, but how do we wake up in the morning and live day-to-day aware of him and his work? I think there's at least three alarm clocks that should go off or three calls that we should hear every morning when we get off. Make a checklist, if you will. Put it on the mirror in your bedroom, if you will. Whatever. But make these three alarm clocks go off, these calls of awareness, these calls of battle, these calls that are going on around us. Let's become alert to them and no longer be ignorant of them. So the very first alarm that we should see, and we'll develop it a little further, is that there's a call for a spiritual awareness. There needs to be a call for a spiritual awareness going on. Because he goes on to talk about our weapons are not of, the, uh, of our warfare, is not of the flesh, but has divine powers. We're not fighting each other physically here. There's something else going on that we need to be aware of. And the problem is, again, some people are asleep at this. Again, if I can quote from Stu Weber, a great book, if you want to study spiritual warfare further, pick up his book, Spirit Warriors. A former Green Beret becomes pastor. He says this, he says, all too often Christians become casualties, not are shot to pieces in a war they didn't take seriously. And I want to talk about real quickly the awareness that we need to have as we wake up in the morning, as we live out every day, of the battles that are raging, of the fronts that we are going to fight on every day. Three personal fronts of daily battle that we need to be aware of. Now, I'm going to say this to you. That as we look at these three fronts, just be aware that Satan does not have any Geneva Convention rule book that he operates by. In fact, the only authority that he must submit to read Job is the authority of God Almighty. But you know what? If you're the target of the day and he can get at you through your self, through your flesh, he'll take it. If he has to go through your spouse, he'll do it. If he has to touch your children, he'd gladly do that. If he has to touch your 401K or your salary or your job, he'll do that. There's a battle raging inside and around us that Satan has no limitations in his own mind that he has to limit himself to. 
So here's, here, here are the battlefronts that we need to be aware of. One is the world. We need to be extremely aware of the external bait that is out there. It's external because it's outside of us. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time next week talking about this, so I'll not develop this very far this week. We're going to be looking at 1 John 2, 15 and 17, so we'll save that for next week. But I want us to be aware that there is this bait that is out there, and it's this world that, that Paul brings this constantly to, and he talks about dying to the world, dying to the flesh. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. There's a systematic, there are systems in this world that are not complementary. They actually run contrary to God's systems and ways. And if we can't point them out and deal with them, then we will be easily, quickly sucked into them. The, the world here is, is used throughout Scripture seven different ways in the New Testament. Seven different ways for the world world to be used. Now, here he's talking about crucifying the world. And other places he talks about dying and the world dying and all that kind of stuff. What is all of this? Because then you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Again, there's seven different ways, and you need to understand which one is speaking of which. Here he is speaking of a world system, of a system in this world that we must be very conscious of. One person said it like this, the world is corporate flesh in the structures it produces. I could think of a number of examples, but I think from our Bible study Wednesday morning with the men and at 6 in the morning and the women at 6.30 on Tuesday nights. I think it was beautifully portrayed in a drama there to talk about how the systems of the world are constantly tweaked. You take a definition of what a family is. Years gone by, it was a man and a woman married living together. That was a family. Today, there's a different definition for family. It is a couple. It doesn't necessarily have to be a man and a woman. They have to be married. They're just living together. They can have kids or not have kids. There's a total meltdown in a system in our culture that degrades away and pulls away what the family is in that world system. If we aren't careful, we can be sucked into believing the world's systems and become like the world. You take a businessman in this world who's taught and believes that if he, uh, if, that if he climbs this corporate ladder, the only way he's going to get to the top is to step on people in front of him. It's all he's ever seen. It's all that's ever been modeled for him. It's all he ever knows is to step on the people in front of him. That's a system of our world. We must be aware of it because that's not necessarily the system of Christ, the system of Scripture. And you say, but hey, Mike, the reality is, and I've heard this, I've seen it in emails, I've heard it face-to-face. It says, Mike, you have this idea over here. You have this ideal world over here. But wake up to the reality. This is Monday morning over here. And, And I want to say, I know. I know. I don't live in a monastery. I have teenagers. I have flesh and blood on. I live in a neighborhood. I deal with the same systems you deal with. And if we aren't careful, we will substitute God's ideal system for the world's systems. And He doesn't care which system it is. Be aware of that. That's why He said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, He says, do not conform to this world. Be aware. We'll talk more about that next week. 
Number two is we need to be aware of the second front that we battle every day, and that's the devil and his demons, the professional fishermen, if you will. I grew up watching Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston. How many of y'all watched Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston? If you're from the South, you probably did. It was amazing. Every three casts, they'd catch a fish. It took me the longest time to figure out. It took them weeks to film that 30-minute show. Because when I go fishing, I throw everything in the tackle box at those fish. I mean, I don't care if it's cold water. I'll take a, I'll take a, I'll take a surface-running lure. Or, I, I don't care. I just want to catch fish. And that whole mentality, we've got to understand that we're not dealing with amateur fishermen when we're dealing with the demons. We're not dealing with amateurs. We're dealing with professionals who are quite skilled at what they do. They're quite organized in what they do. And if I could break down a passage of Scripture just real quickly, Ephesians chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 11 uh, and 12, we'll see here how there is a kind of a breakdown, and you can begin to understand that we're dealing with not only a professional fisherman, but professional fishermen with schemes and plans about them, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes here, before we go to that slide, the schemes here are dealing with, the, it's actually a Greek word, methete, it means methods. But whenever you start and you start breaking into the methods of the devil, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what Paul says here in Second Corinthians. Our battle's not with one another. Our battle is much more spiritual. But it's against rulers. The idea here is that there is a hierarchy in the demonic. That there are generals, if you will. And against authorities. Authorities, they speak to those who are like the lieutenants. The lieutenants that are out there. Oh, by the way, back on the, uh, on the idea of generals, if you don't believe me, read Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 in your own time, because it talks about territorial spirits, that literally evil spirits will have sections in this world, throughout this world. I mean, this is a very systematic approach, but there are generals, there are lieutenants. There are commanders there, the commanders in combat. There are cosmic powers, if you will, and that speaks of the sergeants who have the power to carry out the strategies of war. And then there's, uh, it says, but we have power over uh, this present darkness against spiritual forces. This is the mass infantry that we deal with every day in our life. Very organized. The evil one in heavenly places. And so as you think about Satan, Understand today we're dealing with a professional. I told you last week about my first encounter with demonism. I told you last week about this lady, this girl, young lady in school, who was dealing with one demon in her life. But when she began to be uh, interested in Christ, when she began to go to church, when she began to talk with me and pray with the youth and, and go on mission trips, all of a sudden her life was not alone with this one individual demonic presence but now there were many more present in her life. And as I was talking with her about this, I asked her, what is it like? What's going on? Tell me. I can't see it. You can see it. You're living in it. She said, there was this lady and everything was fine until I started going to church and all, all that I said there. Then all of a sudden, there were people that were over her present and taking charge of the situation. Do you see the imagery in this? You see the picture in this. That Satan is not going to let his captive ones go easily. He will fight for them. 
Now, that was a very real story and a very real life. But what's it going to be in our life? If you say today that, hey, there's something not right in my life and I need to get rid of it, get ready. You will have to fight to get rid of it out of your life. Because Satan will make sure all the generals, all the lieutenants, all the sergeants, all the infantry, he needs to make sure he keeps his captives captive. There's one other front that we must battle and we cannot be ignorant of, and that is self. So we deal with the world systems, and sometimes people blame the world on everything, this big evil world, so let's just escape from this big evil world, and everything will be okay. Not, a, not, not, not the story at all. Well, they blame the devil for everything, and the devil did this, and the devil made me do that. And, and uh, No, not everything is the devil. Not everything is external battles, external bait out there. Sometimes there is an eternal, internal battle. And I will dare say this, that the greatest battle I deal with is internally. The internal battle that goes on inside of me. We have a tremendous proclivity to a sinful decisions. And even in a perfect world, in a perfect church, in a perfect marriage, in a perfect kids, in a perfect, 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 if we do not deal and identify with the self flesh, sin-ridden nature that is in us, if we don't identify with self and deal with it and mortify it, then we will be sucked into it. Here's just a couple of scriptures to back that up. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not exactly the most flattering thing. You think I'm going to have a poor self-image, Mike, when I leave here today. No, don't have a poor self-image. God loved you. gave his life for you. He absolutely adores you. You should have a tremendous self-image, but you should be extremely aware of your own proclivity. Not because, you're not worth something because of your own worth. You're worth something because Christ says that you are worth something. He gave his son for you. Here's, a, here's another passage that just deals with that self-nature, the internal hook that is inside of us that catches things as it goes through. Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these, I warn you. He couldn't even list them all. Again, how many hooks are in your tackle box? I don't know. And really, it's kind of like when I go fishing. I don't care what hook I throw as long as I catch a fish. Satan, he doesn't care what hook he pulls out. Sensuality, fine. Impurity, fine. Rivalries, fine. Fits of anger, no problem. No problem. I'll pull whatever hook I need to to hook them. I want us to understand a very important life principle. And this may, again, wake you up today, hopefully. But your greatest adversary may be the man in the mirror. Your greatest adversary may be yourself. It's not the big mean devil with the red pitchfork of the systems of this world. It may be my deceitful, polluted, undealt with heart. If you look at the passage, in verse 4, he says, the very first part, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but of divine power. See, we need to understand that there's a battle going on inside and all around us, and we must learn to deal with it. So there's a call to awareness that you need to wake up to every day. Is what's going on the flesh, my selfish internal hook? Is it the devil, the professional fisherman, just oppressing me? Is it the world systems that's sucking me in and luring me in? What is it? Become aware. The second is a call to war. It's not a call to stand there. It's not a call to just get educated. There's a call to war. Because he says that our weapons are not flesh, but they're of divine power. There's a divine power that is inside of this war that we deal with that destroys, that will take captive, that will punish. You can circle these words. For for our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy. Circle the word destroy. Strongholds. And we destroy. Circle the word destroy again. Arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take captive. And take every thought captive. Take the circle the word captive to obey Christ. And being ready to punish. Circle the word punish. There's this constant calling out for us to go into life realizing that there is a war raging and that we must be ready to do it, deal with that. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says it like this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are the flesh cannot please God. There's a phrase I want you to take home with you. It's the mortification of the flesh. You know, there's th- some things you do in research and you go into it with hypotheses. This is what I think I'm going to find. This is what I'm going in to prove or disprove. That's a hypothesis. But whenever you come into research, sometimes you come across grounded theory. Grounded theory is the idea that of something that came out of the research that you found when you were doing your research that you did not anticipate as a major player in the research. A part of my grounded theory in, in developing this series of messages is the absolute priority and importance of mortification, the killing of our fleshly desires, taking them under control. It came through again and again and again as I, as I studied. We can't just live like animals. Just do what feels good when it feels good. There's a couple of things that we need to go to war on ourselves. One is destroying strongholds. I wish I could really develop this a lot further, but he tells us there, he says, destroy strongholds. There are times, if we're not careful, that we will give opportunity to the devil, as it says in Ephesians 4.27. We will give opportunity to the devil to come in and to set up a stronghold. Now, a stronghold is, again, a, kind of a Roman period kind of idea. It was kind of the, uh, 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 that, that element in, inside a, forted, a fortified city. It was the citadel uh, where, where all the ammunition, where all the battle, where all the security was. It was in a stronghold. Now, he tells us here, he gives us the idea that we've got to kill the strongholds. We've got to get rid of the strongholds. What are the strongholds in your life? Attitude, perspective, values, character. And I'll just tell you this. A stronghold is something that, that Satan has a corner in your life. Please listen in on this. 
He has a corner of your life that you might clean out everything else. And everything else will pass a white glove test, but then there is a stronghold. An area, a garrison, a citadel, if you will, where he has control. And you actually may need to listen to godly counsel around you to help you identify with it and destroy that stronghold in your life. I have heard men justify addictions to pornography as a harmless way for self-gratification because of whatever reason they wanted to fill in the blank. I have heard, and you know, of ladies who will say that shopping shopping in this materialistic world is therapy for them. They'll laugh about it and they'll go spend it on their credit card. Mike, you're you're getting petty here. No. I think I'm becoming very realistic of strongholds because strongholds we don't identify. We need people in our life to say, you know what? This isn't right. Loving people in our life say, this isn't right. Your attitude isn't right. You've had it for a long time. You own it. It's yours. You've got to be aware of it. Destroy the strongholds of your life. Be very aware of it because it starts with a thought and it just kind of develops. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. It's so progressive in nature. Destroy empty philosophies also. Be very aware of the empty philosophies that are out there. Because he tells us he's there. He says, he says it will be able to destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Destroy those things that take away from truth. Those things that rob us. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm not real big on Oprah. Or horoscopes. And well-intentioned friends. Okay? Who will give us counsel that we want to hear. Who will give us counsel that is all about just pleasing yourself. You deserve a break today. You deserve this. And helps us justify it. Be aware of these arguments and philosophies that can come into our life and hold us captive. And we live in this relativism and pluralistic society. It is rampant. There's no absolute truth. All truths, all faiths are equal. We've got to be aware of this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies. He's at work. He doesn't care how he captures us. He's at work. The last is surrender your thought life. Because he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. We cannot underestimate the value. Listen, please listen to this. Good, upstanding, moral, right, church member, ethical person. Listen to this. Take even your thoughts Most battles are won and lost between the ears. If you can stop it at the head, if you can stop it between your ears, you can win in the end. We've got to mortify the flesh. We've got to kill it. And the way we're going to do that is get rid of the strongholds. We're going to do that is take every philosophy or thought or belief captive, uh, excuse me, destroy those that are wrong, and then take every thought in our life captive. And because this is, this is what Adrian Rogers said. I love it. He said, never give the devil a ride. He'll always want to drive. If you give him a thought, 
he'll take an attitude. You give him an attitude, he'll take your perspective. You give him your perspective, and you see where it goes. It just digresses from there. The third thing, and I'm finished, that we need to wake up every day to in the alarm of our life is a call to spiritual discipline. I didn't say spiritual disciplines, but a call to spiritual discipline. Verse 6, he makes it quite clear. He says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, disobedience, when your obedience is complete. The idea here is that we just need to learn to say no to ourselves. Learning to say no to ourselves and the desires therein is very, very important. I love the way Paul put it like this. Paul said it like this. He says, and by the way, he was in one of the most evil, ungodly systems, worldly systems of that day under, under Emperor Nero. Okay? He said this. He said, I buffet my body. I bring it into bondage. What was he saying? He's saying the, the evil Nero's not the guy. It's not going to be Barack Obama that's going to be the downfall of America or a Congress or a law. It's not going to be that. What it's going to be is whether or not we can handle our own obedience or disobedience. Can we mortify and discipline? Can we mortify the flesh and discipline our spiritual life that we will buffet our body and bring it into subjection? I said earlier that the greatest adversary in your life may be the man in the mirror, but I want to give you another life principle that the greatest answer to the adversary may be the man in the mirror. College football coach, the best football team, the best era, the best, the best, the best, Dallas Cowboys, of course, the best team. Tom Landry, the best coach, said this. He said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. I want to close by reading one last verse, James chapter 4, verse 7. Notice this. It says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's read this verse in reverse. How do we get the devil, the adversary, from taking us captive? How do we defeat him in our life? Well, you need to resist the devil. You need to learn to identify his temptations, identify his ways, identify what he's doing. You need to resist him. But how do you resist him? You submit yourself to God. Now listen to the statement. You can write it down and memorize it. You will never be over until you're under. You will never be over the devil, over his temptations, victorious over him where he's resisting and literally fleeing from you until you learn to put yourself under the leadership of God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Josh, would you come back up here just a second? We're going to sing a song, or he's going to lead us actually in just singing it over us. Because today, maybe the greatest awareness that you have is the awareness of there's a battle. Maybe the greatest alarm clock going off in your head today is that you are at war and that you've allowed the flesh, you've allowed the world, you've allowed Satan to hook you with his cheap bait, with his artificial lures, and he sucks you in. Only thing I can say, Submit to God. 
resist him and let Satan get out of your life. He'll come back again. Don't, don't, don't think otherwise. But are you ready to make that commitment? Maybe you can identify with some things in your life that aren't right. This is the time to get right. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the reality of victory. For some in this room, the reality of victory is only a thought, is only a dream, is only a hope, is only a prayer. Because the flesh of their own selfish desires has become their worst adversary. Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a perspective, maybe it's a value, maybe it's a character issue. But it has literally taken them captive. Father, thank you for the victory over the world. Although the world is telling us to live one way, to do one thing, to think one thing, thank you for the victory over it. For some, again, that's only a prayer. It's only a thought. It's only a dream. It's only a desire. But they're so caught up in a system, in their corporate world, in their personal social lives, in their, in, in, their, in their perspectives. They're so sucked in by Madison Avenue and what Hollywood spits out. They're so sucked in that they don't know their way out. Lord, set them free today. Set them free. Set them free. Set them free. As they submit to you. As they resist the devil. As they have victory in their life. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.